Are you looking for a junior gold company that will give you upside exposure to major gold discovery potential, cash flow, and is located in a secure jurisdiction? Goldrich offers you a unique opportunity and controls almost the entire historic Chandelier Mining District, located in the prolific Ambler Schist Belt in Alaska. The company is applying modern-day techniques to explore the district that previously hosted four hard rock gold mines and various placer operations. Visit Goldrich on the web at www.goldrichmining.com or look us up under the ticker symbol GRMC. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Welcome back to the second hour of our show. I want to thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable. Our sponsors for the second uh, hour of today's show are Airway Energy, Clifton Star Resources, Gold Rich Mining Company, and Prodigy Gold. Well, before we went to the commercial break, um, we were talking uh, with Thomas Greco about a lot of the problems that we see, the centralization of power, uh, essentially uh, reallocating wealth and, and doing a lot of bad things to the environment. Uh, it's a system that is growing uh, and needs to grow at an ever-increasing uh, speed. And, of course, there are limitations in a finite world, as Thomas points out, to that kind of growth. And that we are now bumping up against some of those limitations. And there's going to be, I think there's going to be a, a lot of difficulty ahead. I mean, these are the difficulties that we talk about on the show from week to week. Uh, but Thomas, uh, in his book, uh, I think provides some hope uh, for something better to emerge from this. And, of course, we all need to have hope if we're just looking at the world as a, as a hopeless place without any, any, um, anything to look forward to. It's, uh, it's not a very good place. So I, I wanted to start out uh, the second um, half of our show with Thomas today to talk a little bit about, to read a quote. Uh, this is from D. Hawk. He's the CEO emeritus of Visa International. And, and I'm going to say, I'm going to read here from page one of Thomas's excellent book called The End of Money and the Future of Civilization. Folks, you've got to read this book. You've got to buy it. It's very, 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 very interesting. It's a fascinating read to start with, but I think also um, can be very helpful as we look forward into how to plan our lives going forward. But anyway, let me read uh, D. Hawk. Uh, his his uh, the quote that Richard uh, that uh, that Thomas puts in the book. We are uh, and this is a quote. We are at that very point in time when a 400-year-old age is rattling in its deathbed and another is struggling to be born. A shifting of culture, science, society, and institutions enormously greater and swifter than the world has ever experienced. 
Ahead lies the possibility of regeneration of individuality, liberty, community, and ethics such as the world has never known, and a harmony with nature, with one another, and with the divine intelligence such as the world has never seen. It is the path to a livable future in the centuries ahead as society evolves into ever-increasing diversity and complexity. This is, uh, end of quote. Well, I would just say this is a very, very interesting view of the world that could be. Uh, my question to you, Thomas, is how do we get from where we are now to there? Well, that's been a large part of my work, Jay, is trying to, to figure that out. Mm-hmm. And one of my main mentors was E.C. Regal. And Regal really opened my eyes to the nature of money and uh, how it works. And basically, we all have the money power because the money power is the power to grant credit. And uh, going back to D. Hock, uh, that quote came from his book called One from Many. Mm-hmm. And it's a fascinating story about how Visa International emerged out of the chaotic mess that was the credit card uh, industry 50 years ago. Mm. But uh, basically, you know, we have the power to give each other credit. And uh, what we have to do is to reclaim the credit commons, as I put it. Uh, what uh, what DHOC is talking about, uh, many others are also talking about as well. Even the likes of George Soros is saying that uh, it's not business as usual. We're at the end of an era. And I mentioned Toffler before with his third wave. Uh, I have a conception of this uh, third wave as being... Uh, quite analogous to the emergence of the butterfly from the caterpillar. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mentioned that to some extent in my book as well. Yes. I think this industrial era has been sort of like the caterpillar. You know, the caterpillar phase uh, really involves uh, uh, a very destructive uh, phase of, of the development. A caterpillar does pretty much nothing but eat and grow. And that's the kind of situation we've been in during this industrial era. Uh, we've been consuming and consuming and consuming more and more resources, polluting the environment, uh, expanding our production uh, enormously. But, you know, now, as I said, we've reached the limits to growth on a finite planet. And so we're moving into what you might consider to be the chrysalis stage. Uh, when the growth program runs its course, uh, the caterpillar forms a shell, and uh, everything becomes quiet. But inside the shell, what's happening is the caterpillar body is breaking down. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a parallel, we're seeing all of our institutions break down, mm-hmm. uh, from education to health care to politics and government. And uh, over a period of time, what happens is uh, the body of the caterpillar contained all along what biologists call imaginal cells or imaginal discs. And those imaginal cells start to become active. They multiply and they begin to form the organs of the new butterfly. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what's going on now in society. Uh, The butterfly society is gradually taking shape with all kinds of uh, citizens, groups, nonprofit organizations, uh, all, the, all the community development uh, things that people are doing on their own, uh, finding ways to uh, 
take care of ourselves and move away from our dependence upon governments and banks and those hierarchical institutions. So there's a whole lot involved in this process. But money is one of the key factors. Uh, taking Quigley's uh, quote to heart, you know, we have to get off this uh, merry-go-round of exponential growth. And that means finding uh, a way of trading goods and services that does not involve a chronic scarcity of money, that does not involve lending at compound interest. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you know, you uh, mentioned a very interesting person, and, and in fact, uh, maybe where the butterfly is starting to emerge in, in one little part of the country anyway. Uh, one person mentioned in your book is Richard Flyer. Could you talk to our listeners about uh, Richard and what he is doing uh, in, I think it's in Nevada? Yeah, well, Richard is uh, organizing his community uh, in a way that's fairly unique. Um, but uh, there are others who are talking about uh, wisdom councils and collective intelligence. Uh, Tom Atley has the uh, in Collective Intelligence Institute, I think it's called, and... Uh, uh, Jim Ruff up in Washington State has been working with different groups to form what he calls wisdom councils. Now, these are groups of ordinary people that come together to uh, to investigate and deliberate uh, the different problems that we face. And uh, uh, there are many other activities like this going on. So it's basically we have to emerge from the grassroots uh, new approaches and new structures. And these are social structures, political structures, economic and financial. Uh, it goes across the board. And we're in the early stages of this, but it's going to go fairly quickly, I think, as the uh, dominant system breaks down. Well, I'm just wondering how the establishment is going to take to this uh, decentralization that's growing from the bottom up or this evolution from the bottom up. It's certainly not... Well, they, some... will, they will resist it as long as they're able, but, you know, eventually they're going to see the light, too. They're going to see that they've lost control, and uh, they're going to jump on the butterfly bandwagon. So what? Um, how should people plan for this? I mean, we see all kinds of protests right now, and, and they're becoming, in some cases, uh, increasingly violent. You see what's going on in Greece right now with the breakdown there. In Wisconsin, uh, a year or so ago, you had some uh, some issues, uh, some political um, uh, people speaking out angrily about the establishment. Uh, you had the other day, uh, yesterday, I guess, or the day before, in, uh, in Chicago where the G7 was meeting. You had enormous police force battling back and keeping people away from the from the people that hold the power, the rulers that are controlling our credit system and, and reallocating wealth from the people that create it to themselves. Uh, so what, how should people fight this or how should they, how should they plan their own future? Is it to get in, uh, in some sort of a, a violent tussle with people or do we just go about our own lives quietly, uh, and, and interacting with one another? As you say, we each have the power to create money because we can give credit to one another. Certainly we do that in a way, I think, in many, in many ways, if not, uh, direct monetarily, in monetary ways, but we do it. So how should we? How should people be looking to the future? How should we be planning our lives? Well, the revolution doesn't have to be violent at all. Uh, you know, what we have to do is to uh, look to our own resources. We need we need to learn to share, to cooperate, and create new structures that that better serve our needs. Yeah, the establishment will try to keep the caterpillar 
uh, going uh, as long as it can. But, you know, one way or another, we're going to have to make this transition to a steady-state economy and a decentralized society. Now, we can do it um, in, a, in a conscious way uh, and a deliberate way, or we can do it on an ad hoc basis uh, uh, as, as things continue to break down. Uh, I think it would be better if we do it deliberately and consciously than to uh, to try to deal with problems as they arise. All right. So right. it takes uh, a lot of vision and it takes a lot of cooperation uh, and sharing in order to navigate what Robert Theobald called the rapids of change. Mm-hmm. You know, I, there's another quote that I use in uh, my presentations from Richard Bach. He said, uh, what the caterpillar calls the end of the world, the master calls the butterfly. Mm-hmm. So people need to embrace the change and, and not resist it and not fight uh, the powers that be, but basically claim our own power and do what we need to do to take care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. I draw a lot of inspiration from uh, from Gandhi, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and the Sarvodaya movement mm-hmm. in Asia. Uh, these are nonviolent approaches uh, where people come together and and work things out for themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, it would seem to be the case, and with uh, with the likes of Richard Flyer and others, that that, that in fact people are doing that. I mean, uh, non confrontational, just learning to be. I, I suppose learning, as you say, to share and to do with less material things would be a start. Well, many of us are choosing to do that voluntarily. You know, mm-hmm. I find. Uh, most of the stuff is a burden to me, especially since I like to travel. Uh-huh. And uh, I have one of those storage lockers where I have a lot of stuff that uh, I'm trying to get rid of. Unfortunately, most of it is uh, books and, and papers and documents mm-hmm. that uh, I feel I need to keep. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, we, uh, we need to start uh, at the local level. We're, we're seeing a devolution of power to the local communities. Yeah, uh, Richard Stockman, who was, uh, Reagan's budget director, mm-hmm. uh, in the early 1980s, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. gave a talk here in Arizona, actually up in Phoenix about a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, he was talking to, uh, government and business people up in Phoenix, and he was mm-hmm. saying that Washington is going to become, I quote, a fountain of harm. Mm-hmm. That you're going to have to look to your own resources and uh, take care of yourself because Washington is not only not going to help, but it's going to hinder your progress. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the powers that be are going to try to keep the old game going as long as they can. Mm -hmm. So we we can't do much about that. We just let them go their way while we build a new society from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. Well, interestingly enough, uh, you know, I come from Ohio, and the group not far from where I live, there's quite an Amish community in a way that that's what they do. I'm not saying that I could go back and, and live in a life a lifestyle like that, but certainly the Amish have done it. Uh, an individual I know who sort of opted out of the system years ago has uh, his own uh, his own self-reliant uh, farm and home area where he lives. Uh, I guess it's it's possible to do it, but it's clearly once you're into the system, uh, you're in the Social Security system. You paid in all your life. You're looking to get uh, you know it's it's not so easy to to opt out though, is it? Well, sure. Uh, the Amish uh, live a fairly austere lifestyle, but, uh, you know, they value community 
over technology. And so mm-hmm. they make a choice about which technologies they will adopt and which ones they will not. Mm-hmm. So, for example, one interesting thing about the Amish is they they have telephones in the barn for business purposes, but they avoid having telephones in their homes <laughs> because they want people to visit one another and to yeah. be face-to-face uh-huh. in their contact rather than use the telephone. Uh-huh. And uh, likewise, they use cars, but they typically don't own cars. They mm-hmm. hire a car when they need it. Mm-hmm. Um, so... But we don't have to go to those extremes. You know, we can we can still live a very uh, comfortable lifestyle. Um, but there's no reason why everybody in the neighborhood has to have their own lawnmower, for example. And uh, there are many other things that could be readily shared. Um, you, uh, Thomas, you really made a change in your life. You were, um, I don't know exactly how long ago it was, but at one point when you were, uh, you had just... Um, uh, had just, uh, you know, we're doing very well in your career as a professor, and you were taking a sabbatical to, to uh, get to, to work full time on your PhD, and then you sort of the lights came on, and you started seeing things differently. Uh, could you talk to us a little bit about your personal journey, which you outline in your book, uh, in the first chapter of your book? Well, yeah, I can talk a little bit about that. You know, I started out as an engineer, an aerospace engineer then went to graduate school and then uh, started my academic career teaching business administration. And then, as you say, I was on sabbatical after a few years uh, working on my Ph.D. at Syracuse. And uh, a whole lot of things came together, which uh, basically uh, caused me to reexamine my life and to look at uh, everything in a new way. Uh-huh. It, it's hard to describe. It was sort of like... I suppose you could say God slapped me on the side of the head and I woke up from the matrix. Uh-huh. Uh, which, by the way, raises another interesting book that I would like to recommend. Yes. Uh, Escaping the Matrix, a book by Richard Moore. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it sort of parallels the movie, The Matrix, mm-hmm. uh, which is all about the delusion that we suffer under. And uh, the world is in the midst of a, a gross delusion. Mm-hmm. And little by little, people are coming out of it and seeing reality. So, mm-hmm. you know, I went through that process and began a personal process of re-education. Um, so I started to study everything I could get my hands on, from metaphysics to pyramidology to uh, all kinds of things that uh, might seem a little bit woo-woo. But... Uh, you know, I was quickly led into working with the peace and justice movement because mm-hmm. I felt there was tremendous inequities, uh, social inequities, not only around the world, but also here in our own country. Mm-hmm. And it was during my time working with the Peace and Justice Center that someone sent us a book. I mention it in my book. It's called Flight from, In- or excuse me, it's called uh, In the Wake of Inflation, Can the Church Remain Silent? Mm-hmm. And it was written by someone who was not a scholar at all. He was a elevator repairman, quite elderly at the time, uh-huh. but a devout Christian. And uh, he had done some exploration into the money problem. And uh, there was just enough in that book to get me started on the same path. Mm-hmm. And so I quickly discovered uh, uh, booklets from the U.S. government printing office that were 
commissioned by the Subcommittee on Banking uh, of the House of Representatives. You know, Wright Patman was uh, an expert on monetary mm-hmm. matters, and he yeah. was in Congress during the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And uh, he headed that subcommittee mm-hmm. and had this book published called uh, Money Facts. Mm-hmm. And there was a larger companion to it called The Primer on Money. Mm-hmm. And uh, those are available on the web. You can download them from reinventingmoney.com. Mm-hmm. One of my websites, and that led me to uh, discover other obscure sources of important information about the money system, what money is, and how it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most important of those is E.C. Regal, and mm-hmm. I highly recommend his book *Flight from Inflation*. Mm-hmm. Another one called *New Enterprise Money*, mm-hmm. uh, uh, *Private Enterprise Money*. Excuse mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And uh, another one called A New Approach to Freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rigo uh, took a very libertarian approach in, in his work. And uh, I learned more from Regal than from any other source. Yeah. Well, you certainly uh, have dug into a lot of different sources. Another one that you mentioned under another section of your book uh, on the first chapter is The Seeds of Disillusionment. And you mentioned uh, C. Wright Mills uh, in a book uh, called The Power Elite. Um, you, oh, yeah. quoted, you quoted Mills in that book as saying that there is a power elite composed of men who pos- whose positions enable them to transcend the ordinary environment of ordinary men and women. They are in positions to make decisions having major consequences, end of quote. Well, this is certainly a topic we've talked about on this show from time to time. We've had various people who have focused on what is, you know who the who these where the seats of seats of power rest, who are the powers behind the throne, and um you know, I think a certain amount of that is is it's it's good to know, uh, but having discovered that there is uh, that there are people behind the throne, that it's not really the American public that are controlling their destiny when they vote for a president or their even their local elected representatives, which don't represent them too much anymore, if at all. Uh, that though, it's important to know that that there is a better way to go, and I think that's what's what's uh, so so good about your book. Um, but if you could. Um, just talk a little bit more, if you want to, about the uh, about the seeds of disillusionment in your in your evolution. Uh, well, I think I've said enough about that. I'd like to get on to what we can do and the power that we have to change things. Yeah, let's do that because we don't have that much time left. So um, let's go there then. We're, we're, what would you like to say in that regard more than we have said already about this sort of um, decentralization, taking responsibility? Uh, I guess go ahead. Well, what Regal opened my eyes to was the fact that you know, we we have the money power in our hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way I put it is uh, every political currency is uh, uh, collectivized credit. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's our collective credit of everybody in the dollar zone, everybody in America, that supports the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. Uh, when When the government... Uh, floats a bond or sells a bond to the Chinese, uh, you and I are responsible for redeeming those dollars mm-hmm. with our goods and services and our sweat. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a process where every currency is supported by the collective credit of mm-hmm. the people that are required to accept that currency. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the primary problems is uh, legal tender laws. Yes. Uh, more than 
gold backing or, or, or gold, uh, a link to gold, uh, and the currency is the uh, existence of, uh, legal tender laws. Uh, you know, Sam Chase, who was the Treasury Secretary under Abraham Lincoln, and he oversaw the uh, creation of the greenback currency during the Civil War. Uh, the government needed to finance the war, and uh, the New York bankers were willing to lend to the government, but at exorbitant rates of interest, and Lincoln had to find a way around that. So one of his advisors said, well, all you need to do is to issue currency directly from the Treasury, spend it into circulation, and buy what you need, pay the soldiers with it. Uh-huh. And this, this currency was known as the, the greenback. Yes. And uh, large amounts of greenbacks were issued. And initially they were not legal tender, but eventually uh, legal tender law was passed that said you must accept greenbacks in payment for your goods and services. Uh, this was a, a temporary expedient, supposedly. But, uh, you know, when governments find it, uh, inconvenient to honor their obligations. They always do things like this. They try to force people to accept inferior currency. Mm-hmm. Well, eventually, uh, when Salmon P. Chase later was named Supreme Court Justice, uh, uh, Chief Justice, as a matter of fact, he said that legal tender is only good for purposes of dishonesty. <laughs> And so, and so it is. We have, uh, Federal Reserve notes are, are now legal tender, mm-hmm. and you have to accept them in payment for goods and services, or you have no recourse in the courts. Mm-hmm. So, if we eliminate legal tender, and the dollar had to make its own way in the marketplace on its own merits, uh, then the government would not be able to deficit spend, uh, without limit as they have been doing. But going back to the money power, since it's our credit that supports the dollar, mm-hmm. uh, we can allocate our credit directly to one another mm-hmm. and and use it to support our own agenda instead of the elite agenda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, this is already being done. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not something new. Mm-hmm. Uh, direct credit clearing between buyers and sellers takes place in the commercial barter industry and they don't really do barter, they do uh, credit clearing because mm-hmm. it's a multilateral exchange process. Mm-hmm. And one of the best examples of direct credit clearing amongst uh, businesses is the, the VIR system in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. That's W-I-R. Mm-hmm. It's now called the VIR Bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, VIR is actually the German word for we, but uh, VIR stands for, it's a short for... Uh, Something called, and forgive my pronunciation, Wirtschaftsring. Mm-hmm. It's a circle of businesses that got together in 1934 in Switzerland uh, to find a way around the monetary scarcity that was existing during the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And so they came up with this credit clearing process. They agreed to do business with one another, buying and selling without using Swiss francs, which they didn't have. Instead, they just gave... Uh, a credit to the seller and a debit to the buyer. Mm-hmm. So this was a way of uh, temporarily uh, booking uh, exchanges uh, until the the buyer could sell something to clear his balance. Mm-hmm. 
So it's a very simple process of keeping track of credits and debits. In the long run, of course, you're going to sell as much as you buy and buy as much as you sell. Mm -hmm. So really, that's all that money does today is it provides this credit clearing process. That's what banks do. Mm -hmm. So instead of relying on banks and, and Federal Reserve notes or bank deposits, we can rely on our own credit by forming these credit clearing circles and then network those together into uh, wide area networks. Just like we network our personal computers together, now we have a global internet where we have local control over our own data and our own uh, uh, programs, but we have global access to information as much as people want to share. So we should be able to form a community that has, uh, let's say, that would have uh, credits on a, on a system and say in a computerized system, and share with each other in that way in a barter in a, in a credit system, right? Right. And the Veer system now it's still going after all these years. It's got sixty thousand business members in Switzerland, and they transact about two billion dollars worth of trades uh, through that system. Mm-hmm. And every commercial trade exchange in the United States and elsewhere around the world uh, does the same thing. They recruit businesses to join the exchange, and the businesses do uh, trades with one another on a non-cash basis. They just keep track of debits and credits. And uh, basically, you have to start with uh, a line of credit for uh, at least some of the businesses in the exchange. Somebody has to be empowered to buy before they sell. Right, right. Slack you create in order to enable this this clearing process. Well, Thomas, unfortunately, we're we're out of time. Uh, I have pages more uh, thoughts that I wanted to get your uh, ideas and questions I wanted to get your thoughts about. Uh, Love to have you back sometime again, but we are out of time for right now. How can people... How can people follow your your work? Do you have a blog somewhere or a website? Yes, I have two websites. The primary website is beyondmoney.net. That's beyondmoney, all one word, Mm -hmm. .net. And my archival site is called Mm reinventingmoney.com, reinventingmoney.com. And I've written uh, four books on this subject. Uh, The last one, as you mentioned, The End of Money and the Future of Civilization, uh, the previous one, uh, Money, uh, Understanding and Creating Alternatives to Legal Tender. Mm-hmm. Both of these were published by Chelsea Green. And uh, two additional books that were self-published prior to those, uh, Money and Debt, A Solution to the Global Crisis, and uh, New Money for Healthy Communities. Those two are free to download from my website, re- reinventingmoney.com. Excellent. Um, well, we really uh, would encourage our listeners to follow up, uh, Thomas, with your work. I certainly want to follow up and keep in, in touch with you and, and what you're doing because uh, I think it's uh, we need to have some hope uh, for the future, and I think that what you're saying makes an awful lot of sense. So I want to thank you very much for sharing your, your wisdom, your idea, your insights with our listeners and uh, look forward to having you back sometime in the near future. You're most welcome. Folks, don't go away. We've got to go to a commercial break, and when we come back, I'm going to uh, be playing some remarks about the current market situation uh, with uh, some remarks from uh, Louise Yamada. And so you're not going to want to miss what Louise has to say uh, in terms of the current uh, equity and gold markets. Don't go away. We'll be right back. 
Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to triple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Well, one of my favorite technical analysts, and indeed one of the most highly respected technical analysts on Wall Street, is Louise Yamada. Louise has agreed to come on to this show sometime in the near future, but she was on Bloomberg's surveillance yesterday morning with Thomas Keene and Ken Pruitt. I'm going to pass along some of her comments uh, on the equity markets, as well as gold, the dollar, and some other markets to you now, because I think what she has to say is very, very important. Here is an exchange that took place yesterday uh, on Bloomberg's surveillance between Ken Pruitt, Thomas Keene, and Louise Yamada. There's another rollover. How do you judge a rollover, and when do you know it stops? Well, it's a very good question, and I think we need to look at the market from a structural perspective here because uh, we have 
set record, the average bull market all the way back to 1900 has run up 115%, and ours is 103. The average duration is 34 months. Ours is 37 months. We've had three legs up and two corrections, uh, and it's potentially here a transition from a rising market into a distribution phase. We sent out an interim update looking for risk on uh, May 9th, having said in the last report that the markets were at a decision point. And I think the decisions are really being shown uh, primarily in the global markets where you have two- and three-year tops that are starting to complete and break down. You have both Italy and Spain at new lows versus the 2009 lows. And the one global market in Europe that people aren't paying much attention to is France, which is also incredibly weak, never could really recover, and is also prone to break down, and we're seeing it in the Asian markets as well. The U.S. has been outperforming right. and continues to outperform. Well, the key thing, and, and folks, I'm going to send out the CAC 40. Uh, never done that before. This is the French stock market that Ms. Yamada uh, speaks of. It's a decidedly different chart than the S&P 500. Do you look at the S&P 500 as discrete? Or are they correlated with these other markets more challenged? Uh, the U.S. market, the Dow and the S&P, the NASDAQ, and interestingly, the S&P 600 small cap um, are the only markets uh, in, the, in the developed world that still have our uh, monthly buy signals in place. But those buy signals are becoming quite tenuous. Um, almost everything else has been on a monthly sell since last spring when we, grow, when we began to grow cautious. It's been a very slow erosion, Tom. And the, the indicators, uh, as we came into this uh, particular period in May, have really shown deterioration. And since our alert, um, even more deterioration. Now you have only about 50% of stocks, New York Stock Exchange stocks, above the 200-day moving average. The daily net high lows has given a, a sell signal. And our um, volume momentum indicator is in a, a rather deep oversold. And that's of a concern because you don't really want to go into the market when the oversold conditions are in place. Right. And the VIX has lifted above our threshold. Where's 20. that threshold on the VIX? That's critical, closing 25. 20 is our, is our threshold. Below 20, you're generally in a, in, a, in a, let's say, a stable market. Right. But, Louise, what is the difference between a VIX of 22 or more theater of 25.10 where we are now, or if you get out more, where is there real technical deterioration off of the VIX? I think when it moves up through 20. I mean, anything above 20 is of concern to us because historically, if you look at the VIX from a very long-term perspective, um, and I'll pull up a monthly, a weekly chart on that, you can go all the way back to 2000, um, you'll see that when it comes down under uh, the 20 level, you're generally in a, in a good, in a fairly decent mm -hmm. market environment. But in 2007, right. it lifted you know, right in the middle of the year, lifted in July before we really saw uh, concern. But I, I think there's more and more that's suggesting here that we might be seeing the end of this three-year um, bull market run. So the three-year bull market may be coming to an end, according to Luis Yamada, who is one of the most respected, if not the most respected technical analysts on Wall Street these days. Her view is very much my own view that I have formed on the basis of my own observations as well as the observations and analysis of other people that I respect greatly, such as Ian McAvity, Ian Gordon, Robert Prechter, Jim Lyles, Arch Crawford, to name a few. But if the general equity market is nearing the end of this cyclical bull market within a secular bear, 
What about gold? What about the dollar? And what about that new, much ballyhooed IPO named Facebook? Here is what Luis Yamada had to say to those questions from Bloomberg's Thomas Keene and Ken Pruitt. Luis Yamada with us as we look at gold. Luis, I've got a, a point and figure chart of gold, and there seems to be incredible support in the vicinity of 1550. What are the ramifications if we go through that triple bottom? Well, you sort of did uh, very slightly um, this, on this breakdown. And 1550, 1600 uh, has been our support level. But you've also broken the uptrend from the 2008 lows, and you're doing it with a declining uh, weekly momentum and a slight sell on the monthly, similar to what happened in 2008. So we're not sure that it's over here. Normally after a slight break or breach of uptrend, you could have a kickback rally towards 1600, toward the uptrend itself. And then we'll see what happens on the other side. But we know that when we've had a, a general market sell-off, the gold uh, generally goes with it the way it did in 2008. Um, 2007, 2008, and I think that probably there's a, a longer period of repair or proof of the pudding uh, that needs to come into place with gold. Possibility that going to 1500 right. is still there, possibly lower. Go ahead, Chuck. You think, Louise, with everything going on in Europe, that uh, is gold no longer a haven? Well, I think that the issue is that if you have to sell something and you can't sell something, you sell what you can, you know, uh, and maybe gold has a, has a relationship to that just the way it did in 2008. Uh, we did see gold sell off quite, quite a bit then because along with stocks. Now, of course, the try in the ointment here is if the Fed comes in with another QE, uh, then the market may be given some temporary, uh, relief and, uh, the same for gold, but I suspect this week we're looking right. at some kind of a rally, but I don't think many people are going to want to go into a three-day weekend that's not shared by the world uh, with extreme long positions, so I would consider the rally here an opportunity maybe to lighten some stocks that are weak, and right. uh, we'll watch gold. I'm not convinced as to the direction, but your moving averages have given a sell signal, and yep. there's probably a little bit more uh, negativity there than we would like to have seen. It was in a range between 16 and 18 for a very long time, and the break either way was going to define the next mm -hmm. direction. Uh, Luis Yamato with us. It's futures deteriorate. Futures up five. They were up nine earlier. The 10-year yield was a 174. It comes in two basis points, 172. There's a little bit of tension on the screen. Facebook breaks to new weakness. We're going to really stay on top of this $36.54. We began at 8 o'clock at 38. There was an immediate descent in the vicinity of 37.40, and then a return down. It is a classic uh, down and then up for a little bit, and then another leg down, the new leg, 36.56, a 10% decline off 38. It's $34.20, nowhere near that uh, yet. Ms. Yamada, can you take Facebook and its attached Zynga, and do they come over to dampen the overall market? That's probably a question I can't answer um, because there's, I mean, there, from a chart perspective, there's no history on it. Um, but I think that uh, 
Oh, I don't know what to say here. That's okay. I have, I have ethical no, issues with Facebook, no, so I don't mind at all. No, that's fine. We'll pass on uh, that. I'm, I go into the Yamada timeout chair with a question she can't answer. Let me hand it over to Ken Pruitt. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you see in, in the way the dollar's been moving, Louise? Well, the dollar's been in a trading range. That's been one of the fascinating aspects of the past few months is that everything's sort of been in a trading range without making a decision. So here the dollar's been between 77, 78, and 80, 80. 81, and uh, that's a resistance level at 8081 that goes all the way back to 2010. So, you know, we had suggested whichever way it breaks, if it breaks through 78, then it was going lower. If it breaks through 8081, then perhaps it's going higher, and it looks like it really probably wants to break out through 8081 at this point. Uh, so we could see higher levels. Uh, Louise, if someone is institutional and they by prospectus have to be in the market, with your caution, where do you hide? Oh, I think the answer has been pretty general. Um, the, co the consumer staples have been doing well. The utilities, the telecoms. Are uh, they doing well, but have they broken down technically as well? Some of them. I mean, utilities, I think you have to be extremely careful um, because some of them are doing well and some of them are not doing so well. Um, consumer staples at best um, neutral to holding up, let's put it that way. And, and remember, outperform. Something always has mm -hmm. to outperform into the top. It doesn't mean they can't go down, but outperform usually suggests going down less if they should go down. Louise, when you look at gold rolling over the commodities, as well, give us a sense of the hundreds and hundreds of charts you look at in fixed income, in currencies, in commodities. Where is the most interesting chart right now? Hmm. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I would say since so much of the commodity hinges on the dollar that that's probably what we should be watching. What do you see there? I, we put that out earlier, the trade-rated uh, broad index, uh, a little bit of a bounce here, but can Luis Yamada talk about a strong dollar policy? Well, I don't think we want a small, strong dollar policy. I don't think we ever have. I think that that's been just talk, frankly. Um, from a trade-weighted dollar, broad trade-weighted dollar perspective, this looks like a kickback rally. What about on DXY? Is that what you trade? When you want to trade dollar, what do you look at? We look at the DXY because that's what most people look yes. at. But we like the uh, we like the broad trade weighted dollar because it includes all of the uh, emerging nations. I just sent out on Bloomberg Radio Plus free on iTunes the DXY. How critical is this 82 level? We're right now at 81.28. A higher statistic is a stronger dollar. Mm. Well, it's an impressive resistance level, so I would say if we get through it and sustain it, that uh, the dollar yeah. has a chance of going uh, maybe a point or two higher. That resistance level, folks, going back to 2010, autumn of 2010. Never enough time. Luigi Yamada, thank you uh, so much. You might research and you'll hear her uh, caution there in her non-comment on Facebook. Facebook just went to 36.70 and then reverses abruptly 36.55. Right now, the low is 36.50. That was at 8.52 four minutes ago. Watching that closely, Ken, it looks like we're going to go right through 36.50. Yeah, there we go. We just printed 36.49. Well, there you have some comments on gold, the dollar, where to hide and protect your money in this stormy market, as well as a non-comment from Luis Yamada about Facebook. We have to go to commercial break right now. When we come back, I will have more to say about Ms. Yamada's views, today's markets in general, as well as my earlier discussion with Thomas Greco. 
I'll also tell you who our guest for next week will be, so don't go away. I'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I just want to wrap up uh, today's show, a, a most interesting show for me. I hope that those of you who listen to it uh, agree with me, but starting with the notion uh, early on with Mr. Butler talking about the uh, the likelihood or at least uh, the evolution, possible evolution back to a gold standard. He believes that we could be looking uh, at something uh, that would be forced on the establishment uh, just simply the U.S. may be forced as its uh, situation, credit situation deteriorates. Of course, at the moment, the real weakness appears to be, as Luis Yamada pointed out, uh, in Europe and in Asia, those markets uh, are really looking weak. And if you if you believe that the equity markets are really leading indicators, uh, then uh, then we're really looking at something that um, you know that suggests a lot of weakness into the future. In the U.S. markets uh, too, uh, she seems to be Louise seems to be turning. Uh, quite bearish uh, uh, on the U.S. markets, uh, and so we're watching that very carefully. Interestingly enough, I noticed that the, uh, during the time that the show was going on, the markets had turned around and headed back south uh, quite a quite a bit. Uh, well, they, from their earlier uh, levels, they finished. I see the Dow was down slightly today, but she uh, Louise talked about um, the VIX and a, a level of 20 being crucial. Well, earlier in the day it had fallen below 20, but late in the day there was a surge in the VIX as the equity markets declined uh, in the United States uh, to 2061. And so a big turnaround in the markets today seems like um, uh, the, the, uh, the upward momentum of the, uh, of the stock market in the U.S. Uh, may be running out of steam. Certainly as I look at uh, the comments from the Lowry, the Lowry report, uh, would suggest that this is probably a short, short-lived uh, move upward. 
looking at the gold price, I agree with Louise uh, Yamada also that, um, uh, you know, the gold is likely to decline with the general equity market decline, but that is of no uh, significant consequence to me necessarily because what I look at as I talk about on this show and as I talk about in my newsletter frequently is the real price of gold. Gold, uh, how is it performing relative to all kinds of other items? And it is holding its own, folks. It's doing extremely well. Gold is holding up in terms of uh, the Rogers Raw Materials Fund, and that is allowing mining companies, gold mining companies, to do very well. The equities have not been performing all that well. That's true. But I'm wondering if we might not be seeing a turnaround in the equity market. Indeed, today, a very nice rise in the Toronto Gold Index, which I watch because it most closely reflects the kind of companies that I cover in my newsletter. Uh, these are the smaller gold mining companies, the evolving producers, and the exploration companies uh, are captured in that gold uh, TSX Gold Index. And it finished at 292.04, which was up five, uh, five points or so in change. Could be that we've seen the lows. I'm not convinced of it yet. I think if we have a real washout, a real plunge in the equity markets, then I think gold and gold shares and everything can go down because, as Louise was pointing out, you don't sell what you want to sell. You sell what you're able to sell uh, in these kind of markets. So I think we need to be ready for uh, some real turmoil in the equity markets, in the debt markets. And certainly, uh, as Thomas Greco was saying, we are facing some enormous changes. Uh, he uses the the picture of a um, uh, you know the caterpillar changing into a butterfly. We can only hope that that's what happens, and we can only hope that it that it evolves in a relatively peaceful manner. We see the increasing violence uh, that is occurring and and discontent and unhappiness and anger over the establishment. It's an anger I think that is justified for sure. But how do we best? Uh, protect ourselves uh, moving forward and where should we go I, uh, in, in that regard. I also uh, was interested in Louise Yamada's uh, comment about the dollar, certainly the most important market. She told uh, the Bloomberg folks uh, to watch the dollar, and I would, uh, she, and I would go back to, um, uh, to the idea of another of our guests, Jim Lyles, who suggests that we're looking at 7080 as a key on the dollar index. And um, Jim who is more of a deflationist than anything right now, uh, would turn in the other direction. He thinks if the dollar were to plunge, were to go below 70, 80 on the index, uh, there's nothing uh, to support it beyond that, uh, below that level, and then we could be on to something uh, really nasty. Uh, let's, hope, uh, let's hope that that's not the case. We're, we're always hoping for a smooth transition, but the enormous amount of debt that has been piled into the system is, uh, is breaking us down, and there are going to be huge changes going forward and that's what we try to prepare ourselves as best we are able. In some ways, perhaps it's not a monetary solution. I think Thomas Greco provided some ideas uh, about how we might best protect ourselves. And a lot of times it has more to do with, uh, with uh, families and caring for each other uh, and extending credit one to another and extending money in that regard. Well, we are out of time. Sorry to say, we've got to go. Uh, next week, my guest uh, is going to be um, we're going to have Bill Tatro. He's a well-known radio personality and economist, and also an economist and a lawyer, former Cleveland Federal Reserve official Walker Todd will be with us. Both of these gentlemen have an awful lot to offer. You're not going to want to miss. I want to thank Tacey Trump, Justin Jackman, my engineer, Tacey Trump, my producer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to you for listening. Till next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you.
Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.